Well, good morning again. So good to be with you all. I think I uh, preached for some of you um, a few years ago at a different building. I think you guys were meeting at Grace Baptist Church in the summer of 2020, maybe. Uh, but it looks like there's a, a few new faces. So uh, good to be with you all this morning. Good to be able to uh, to bring God's word, to, to fill in for my brother John Joseph. I love your pastor. I love that you all are a church that loves your pastor and are able to give uh, he and his family a sabbatical to get some rest in this season. I pray it would be a restful time. Thank you guys gave him that time. Uh, for you, this was a restful summer or has been a restful summer for many of you. Perhaps you're taking vacations or planning on vacations. My family and I took a, a vacation a few weeks ago to Orlando. Which, if you ever taken your family on a vacation to Orlando, we feel like we need a vacation from that vacation. I think it speaks to the real felt need we all have for some kind of escape, for some kind of refuge, some place we can hide in. Because the world that we live in can beat us up pretty, pretty badly. Troubles in the world, the, the troubles in our own hearts, the troubles in our own homes leave us feeling quite battered and bewildered. That's one of the reasons we come to church. Because life is not just okay. As Christians, we don't want to have churches where we, we have to come with a smile on our face all the time feeling good. We understand that life is hard. Many of you might be here this morning in the pits of life, not feeling good. You might have a troubled life, and you are seeking refuge. And as churches, we mean to point you to that refuge through the songs we sing, through the prayers that are prayed, and through the word that is brought. We find refuge not in a place, a vacation, a resort. We find refuge ultimately in a person, in God. We find refuge in his word. And so this morning, you are wearied and troubled where you'd find rest and hope and safety and encouragement, not from danger, but in the midst of danger in God's word. If you have a Bible, would you turn with me to Psalm chapter 3? Psalm chapter 3. I'm going to read the, the passage, see what it says, and we'll walk through it, kind of explain what it means, and try to apply it to our lives in various ways. Psalm chapter 3. A psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. O Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Selah. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. Selah. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord. Save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your as you look at this psalm, notice there's a, a title given to it that's absent from the, the two psalms before it. Not simply the, 
the title that's given there by the ESV editors. If you've got an ESV Bible or another translation, you might see a, a title. For, for instance, an ESV is Save Me, O God. But there's another title there in smaller letters that are in all caps, at least starting off. A Psalm of David, when he fled from his son Absalom. These titles, also known as superscriptions, start here in Psalm chapter 3 and stretch throughout many of the other psalms in the Psalter. You've probably seen them, and if you're anything like me, growing up reading some of the psalms, you perhaps are never quite sure what to do with them. Maybe you skip over them and start at verse 1 because you want to give the majority of your time to actually studying the text of Scripture. That's a good desire. But if when you read the Bible, when you read the Psalms, you want to focus on the actual text of Scripture, then we need to read and apply these superscriptions. Why? Because they're included in the actual text of Scripture. If you picked up a Hebrew Bible, the original language the Old Testament is written in, and turn to Psalm chapter 3, what you'd find is not a superscription. What you'd find is that verse 1 says a Psalm of David when he fled from his son, Absalom. These titles are authoritative and are meant to provide vital information to help us understand and interpret the text. And in this title in particular, we get valuable information about the author and the occasion of this writing. The author is David, the king over Israel. And the occasion for the writing is when he was on the run from his son, Absalom. It refers back to the events in David's life recorded in 2 Samuel chapters 15 to 18. When David's son, Absalom, conspires to, to take the throne from his father. He secretly wins the hearts of the people, and he even turns some of David's most trusted advisors against him. To the point that they are all ready to install Absalom as their new king. The word comes back to David, and he's forced to vacate the throne and flee from his life before his own son comes and kills him. It's this moment in David's life that prompted the writing of this psalm. When troubles are mounting and dangers are near, David turns to God. The same place we should turn when we are in trouble. So friends, again, if you find yourself worried this morning, burdened this morning. I trust this psalm will speak to you. And here's what I think is the main idea of Psalm chapter 3, the main idea of the sermon. In the midst of many dangers, God is present to protect his people. So trust him and call on him for help. In the midst of many dangers, God is present to protect his people. So trust him and call on him for help. In directing his attention to God in the midst of troubles in this text, I think David shows us three postures to assume. And those will serve as the kind of three points of the sermon. What should we do when we are in trouble? Number one, talk honestly. Talk honestly. Get out of verses one and two. Number two, trust confidently. Trust confidently. We see that in verses 3 through 6. And number 3, ask boldly. 
We see that in verses 7 through 8. So number one, talk honestly. Number two, trust confidently. Number three, ask boldly. First, talk honestly. Look again at verses 1 and 2. We read, O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Now, many of us have come up reading the Psalms as random passages, disconnected from one another. Uh, Pick a psalm, any psalm, your favorite psalm, maybe Psalm 23 or Psalm 91, and you can read it or preach from it and you'll be blessed. Well, that's true. All God's word is profitable and useful for teaching. But the psalms have a structure. They have an order, and that matters. So if you look over to the previous psalm, Psalm chapter 2, in the opening verses, we see the the description of, of many raging nations, of many plotting peoples conspiring against the Lord and against his anointed, his king. And as we open up Psalm 3, what do we see? Many foes rising up against the Lord's anointed, against the Lord's king, specifically King David. But I wonder if you're tempted to ask yourself in reading this, well, what's the use of verses 1 and 2? I mean, what point do they serve? David just kind of outlines what's going on which might be of some benefit to us readers thousands of years removed to give us some idea of the situation. But what's the use of relaying this information to God? Notice who David is addressing in verse 1. Not us, but God. Oh, Lord, he starts out. How many are my foes? How many are rising against me? Is he trying to inform God of something? Impossible. We just sang, who can teach the one who knows all things? God is aware of everything. So, so what's the point of David telling God about his problems in these verses? You don't need to catch God up. He already knows what's going on. That's how we sometimes talk, isn't it? How we pray. How we counsel others. God doesn't need you to restate your problems. He's sovereign. He knows them. That's not how David thinks, though. He tells God what's going on. My life is in danger. Enemies are after me. And this is what they're saying. You've left me. When David goes before the presence of God, he doesn't put on a facade of being fine. Do you? Do you? Is that the way you pray? Presenting an inaccurate picture of yourself? Is that the way you come to church? The feeling you have to put a mask on to show that you don't need help. You're a hero. I mean, maybe that's what you think everyone expects of you as an elder or a ministry leader here. Or maybe that's what everyone expects of you as a child of one of the elders or ministry leaders. Or maybe you think you're supposed to be the all-sufficient, all-capable supermom. I mean, all your kids are perfectly behaved. At least that's what you want people to think. So surely you can't share your struggles in parents. Friends, when someone asks, how are you doing, how raw is your response? How often do you answer, I, I can't complain? Really? 
Does your life have no problems? Rather, I think what's behind that, that answer is a kind of trained church reply. One that's been informed for years by well-meaning parents and parishioners and pastors who've told us Christians shouldn't complain. God's people should not complain. Well, if that's the case, we're going to have a hard time reading the Psalms. I mean, just a small sample size of just the first few Psalms shows us a lot of complaining. I'll take maybe 10 minutes this afternoon and read the first few Psalms and see what you find. Here in Psalm 3, David complains that his foes are numerous. In Psalm 4, which we read earlier, David complains that men are lying, trying to turn his honor into shame. In Psalm 5, David complains that he is groaning under the oppression of his enemies. In Psalm 6, David complains that he is languishing, that his soul is greatly troubled. In Psalm 7, David complains that his pursuers are trying to tear him apart like a lion. One of the things the Psalms expose is a kind of rawness, realness that we need before God and before one another. Psalms like Psalm 3 give us a better alternative to dealing with problems than simply internalizing them. A better alternative, alternative than trying to grin and bear them. A better alternative than telling strangers all about them. Broadcasting all our burdens on social media. Psalm 3 directs us to talk to God. Tell him all your troubles. Friends, I trust that's, that's comforting. Because maybe like me, you don't know what to do about all your troubles. I don't know what to do about all the evil of the world. I don't know all the details or all the solutions, but I know I'm troubled. Troubled to see so many mass shootings. Troubled to see so many murders, so many carjackings in PG County. Troubled to see hurricanes smashing homes and diseases taking lives. Troubled to see Christians tearing one another apart online. Troubled to see people walking away from the Lord and others hardened in sin against him. I'm troubled, and I don't know what to do about it all. But the Bible says you don't know, you don't have to know what to do about it all. Just tell God about it. You see, our role and God's role are not the same, right? We, we think we are supposed to correct. The Bible tells us to cast. Cast your burdens. Don't worry about correcting them. That's God's role. God invites us to, to talk to him honestly, to tell him what's going on in our hearts. The God who powerfully spoke all of creation into existence is the same God who attentively listens to the cries of his creatures. He cares. And friends, if God gives us space, space like that to, to vent, shouldn't we give each other the same amount of space to air our frustrations? our problems, our worries, 
that Christians, above all other people, should be a people who give each other a lot of space and a lot of grace as we go through life together. We shouldn't stifle one another or assume the worst about each other because we've been raw, honest with one another. Brothers and sisters, pray that the Lord would continue to build a culture here at Chevrolet Baptist Church where you can be open and transparent, where you can share and even grieve about different things without fear of being ripped apart, of being mischaracterized, of being criticized for having weak or no faith. But David here openly shares with God. He complains, Lord, there are many enemies around me. They're out to hurt me. They're rising up against me. And notice these enemies aren't atheists. Listen to what they say in verse 2. They don't claim there's no salvation in God. But only there's no salvation for David, for him in God. These enemies aren't from other nations who don't believe in Israel's God. These enemies believe in God. They believe that he saves folks. They just don't believe that he'll save David because they don't believe that David is one of God's people. I mean, look at his plight. He's been forced off the throne, forced to go on the run by his own son. Surely God has rejected him. That's not mere speculation. That's what David heard as he fled from his son Absalom. In 2 Samuel chapter 16, as David is on the run from Absalom, he he passes by a certain place, and a man from Saul's family named Shimei comes out cursing David as he passes by. He says in 2 Samuel chapter 16, verses 7 and 8, Get out! Get out, you man of blood, you worthless man! The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. Look at him, Shimei is saying. He's done too much wrong. God is against him. There's no salvation for him. But as we look at David... The Bible draws our eyes to look at his descendant, the greater David, Jesus Christ. To look at him when his claims of kingship, of being the Lord's anointed, are also in question, as he too finds himself in a shameful position, driven out of the land, not on the run, but on a cross. And listen to what his enemies are saying. In Matthew chapter 27, verse 41, the chief priest with the scribes and the elders mocked him, saying, he saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now, if he desires him. There's no salvation for him. Deliverance for him in God. I wonder if we hear that same voice today. When we speak of others. We believe in God. But we don't believe God will save that person. I mean, look at their lives. 
Surely God has rejected them. There's no salvation for him, for her in God. Is that how you view Democrats or Republicans? Is that how you view pro-choice advocates? Or, or neighbors who proudly hang rainbow flags in their front yard? Is that your thought of people close to you and your family whose actions show you that they are far away from the Lord? There's no salvation for them in God. Perhaps that's the voice speaking to you this morning. The voice that's been ringing loudly in your head throughout this past week as you went to, to bed last night. As you got dressed this morning, as you drove here to Bladensburg High School this morning, or elementary school. Do you know how you treated your wife this past week? You remember what you watched the other day? You, you know how you've been speaking? The text you've been sending? Or, or, or the Snapchat messages or the Instagram posts? You know what kind of person you are? I mean, look at yourself. There's no salvation for you in God. Why are you going to church? Is that where you find yourself this morning? In this season of life? With many foes rising up against you externally and internally? What should you do? David instructs us here, first, talk honestly to God. Secondly, trust confidently. Number two, trust confidently. Given the, the presence of and the rhetoric of David's enemies, you might be surprised that there's any confidence expressed in this psalm at all. I mean, these enemies claim there's no salvation for him in God, and given his circumstances, you might forgive him for beginning to believe it. And we're going to have to slide into these man, this man's sandals here for a minute. He's been forced into exile, forced to leave the throne and go into hiding, and his main opponent is his own son. Maybe his sin is still being punished. I mean, there was that whole Bathsheba episode. It cost him a child. Maybe it would cost him the crown as well. And maybe God has taken away his anointing and given it to another, just as he'd taken Saul's anointing away and given it to David. Maybe God has given up on him. You might expect David to, to begin to believe it all. And yet, with all the taunts, with all the chance being thrown his way that he was alone, that God had abandoned him, that God had forsaken him, David responds in verse 3, but but you, O oh Lord. Friends, you're going to have to get that one in your repertoire if you're going to survive as a Christian. Because there's going to be some seasons in life when you feel all alone. When, when those closest to you, those who were most supportive at one time, turn into your fiercest enemies. The kids, maybe you've already experienced it. As you've taken a stand for Jesus and against sin, and you've seen friends distance themselves from you because you haven't given in to, to the pressure to, to take that puff or pop that pill or lay next to him and her on that pillow. Or perhaps parents, you, you've seen your own kids rage against you 
your own children, rage against you for your Christian beliefs and your Christian ethics. When it seems like the the whole world is against you and God has forgotten you, you're going to have to have a built-in censor that says in such times, "But, but you, O Lord, Contrary to the claims that God had left him, David has confidence that God is with him. And his confidence is based on God's character, who God is, a protector, a deliverer. David trusts this God. And notice in verses 3 through 6, this trust is founded on presence and past and future assertions about God. Who God is, who God has been, and who God will be. First, look at who God is at present. David says in verse 3, But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. Notice in verses 1 and 2, the, the present dangers. Many are my foes. Many are right now rising against me. Many are right now saying of my soul, there's no salvation for him. Verse 3, but you, O Lord, are right now a shield about me. Though there are many present dangers, the Lord is a present defense. As another psalmist says, he's an ever-present help in trouble. He don't come after the fact saying, well, why you ain't hit me up? I would have helped you. You ever got any friends like that? He doesn't simply promise before problems come. Call me whenever you're in need, and I'll come and be there for you. Just call my name, and I'll be there. No, but in the midst of the madness. When situations seem most scary, God is there. I am with you. David calls God his his shield here. Being the man of war he was, David knew the importance of of a shield in battle. It, It protected you from the nearby thrust of swords and spears, and it guarded you from the fiery arrows being flung from a distance. Now, David says, you shield me from every kind of attack and every kind of attacker. And on every side, you are a a shield about me, around me. But I don't think David gets this imagery of of God as a shield simply from his battlefield training. It's not born merely from David's subjective experiences, but from God's objective exposition of himself. Who God exposes reveals himself to be. Way back in, in Genesis chapter 15. As as God is about to enter into a covenant with David's ancestor, Abraham, listen to what he says. Fear not, Abram, for I am your shield. David doesn't listen to what everyone else is saying about his relationship with God. He listens to what God says about himself and his relationship with those who trust in him. I am your shield. And David believes God and appropriates it to himself. Yes, Lord, you are my shield. I think there's a lesson for us here. Don't get your theology mainly from other people. 
Don't get your view of God mainly from YouTube clips or from social media or blog posts. It's incredibly uh, interesting how, how, how those outlets are constantly forming our minds, isn't it? Don't even get your view of God from yourself. Your fluctuating feelings influencing your faith. Now, get your view of God from God himself. Listen to what he says about himself in his word. Let the Bible inform you about God's character and his care for his people. And believe it. David trusts that God is a present shield about him. David's confidence in God's protection is also grounded on on past experience. David has a history with this God. Look at verses 4 and 5. He says, I I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. Notice all those past tense verbs there. I cried. He answered. I lay down and slept. I woke. The Lord sustained me. David is recounting previous experiences where he cried out to the Lord and the Lord helped him. And this previous experience of God's provision of protection helps to motivate his present trust. While people are saying, God won't save you, David recalls times in the past where God has saved him, where God has spared his life. God is not inanimate or inactive or disinterested or distant. He's been active in this man's life. In the past, I called. God heard, and he responded. And it's interesting, the the event that David brings to mind to testify of God's past care. I mean, you'd think he'd go for the jugular. You might expect him to remember God sparing his life from the hands of the giant Goliath as a soldier boy. You might think he'd recall God delivering him from the paws of bears and lions as a shepherd boy. But what David testifies about is God sustaining his life through sleep. I lay down and slept. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. Friends, even the seemingly small, mundane acts fall under the purview of God's sovereign care. You woke this morning because God watched over you all night and got you up this morning. I mean, think about how many mornings he's allowed you to see. I'm sure there's been some restless nights, but think about how many restful nights the Lord has given you. Take some time this morning. Some of you might be math majors, right? Think about how many mornings God has given you throughout your life. And see if you can give him that many praises for his sustained provision, his sustained protection. He's worthy of praise. David here remembers God's past care. But in remembering God's past care, being sleeping and being awoken, he's not just remembering God's care and and giving him a good night's sleep on a cozy bed. No, he's recalling God's protecting his life as he slept, even as enemies pursued him. I mean, it is a dangerous thing to to go to sleep when people are after you. You might wake up with a sword at your neck or not wake up at all. But though many sought to take his life, David prayed 
laid down, and slept like a babe, entrusting himself to the care of the one who never sleeps, who never slumbers. And as the morning broke and David arose unharmed, he attributed his safety to one person, God. He sustained him. And as David remembers what God did, it motivates his trust. The Lord who spared me then will spare me now. The same God is unchanging. Friends, do you have some kind of of, of system to recount God's faithfulness to you? Maybe it's in, in keeping a journal. Maybe it's sharing testimonies with each other. You need some kind of system because dangerous times, dark times have have this seemingly strange ability to give us spiritual amnesia, to act like God had never got us out of nothing before. And we need something or someone to remind us in such moments of God's always present, ever-present care. We need something or someone in such moments to spark in us a, but you, O Lord, rebuttal against the claims of what God can't do or what God won't do. We we need something or someone in us to to remind us of, of when we were ensnared in that toxic relationship. But God stepped in and rescued us from it. We we need something or someone to remind us of when we were in that dark valley of depression, thinking that death was the only way out, but here you are today, alive, trusting in God. We need something or someone to remind us of when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, in all the things that we loved and the sins that we cleaved to and thought we would never break out of. We need something or someone to remind us of God sending his son, Jesus Christ, and capturing our hearts of God rescuing us from the domain of darkness and transferring us into the kingdom of his beloved son. We need something to remind us of the God who gave us new life in Jesus and new desires and has set us on a new path with a new family to help us on our eternal, to get to our eternal home. We need something or someone to remind us of what God has done. One of the most useful ways you can serve as a church member here is by learning the testimonies of your brothers and sisters. You can start over lunch this afternoon. Maybe take someone out to lunch or coffee this week and just ask them, how did you become a Christian? Maybe you've known them for a long time. You know they're a solid believer, but you've never known how they became a Christian. Ask them that question. Kids, that would be a great thing to ask some of the older members. How did you become a Christian? If you're visiting this morning, I guarantee you, none of us came out the womb Christians. All of us are Christians today because God has done some major work in our lives. So if you think that God can't save you, talk to somebody around you, all right? One of the, 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 the best ways to serve as a member is to share your testimonies with each other. And then take those testimonies and, and load them into your mental clip so that you can faithfully fire them off against the foes of unbelief and doubt and discouragement and despair as they constantly rise up in your brothers' and sisters' lives, reminding them often of how God has worked in the past for them, who he has been in the past for them, and encouraging them to trust him in the present and to trust him in the future. And notice David's reflection of God's past care fuels confidence against future threats. He says in verse 6, I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who set themselves against me all around. 
In other words, who cares about Absalom? Been there before, saw before him. That's not to say that these aren't real threats, but David basically says, let Saul and Absalom be multiplied by thousands and I'm going to be okay. Regardless of how many foes rise up, I have no fear for what lies ahead. There may be many thousands of people against me, but I will not be afraid. Why? Because the same God who was with me then is with me now. The same God who showed his care for me then will show his care for me now. He will never leave or forsake us. We can confidently trust in this God because of his continued committed care for his people. And we can boldly ask him for help. Third and final point, ask boldly. Notice so far, David hasn't asked God anything in his prayer. How different is David than us? He hasn't asked God anything. He's complained to God. He's recounted God's faithfulness, and, and in doing so, he's He's reassured himself of God's care, but now he makes requests of God. David asked God to do to his enemies what his enemies are doing to him. Notice verse 1 says, many are rising against me. And in verse 7, David asks, O Lord, you arise. Rise up against them and do what they say you won't do. Save me. And notice this prayer for salvation isn't simply for protection from his enemies, but for victory over his enemies. And not by his own hand, but God must accomplish this victory. Victory, Lord, you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. David's enemies are likened to wild beasts who, who when their jaws are shattered and their teeth broken, become totally harmless. No threat at all. That's what he prays God would do to them, that God would crush them, that God would conquer them, that God would humiliate them. And again, it's interesting that David asked God to do this. Though a great warrior king, known for for winning many military battles, he calls on God. I think it shows us that there are some battles, some enemies that only God can fight. God must win this victory, and he must restore his king to his rightful throne, which he ultimately does. God answers David's prayer. He defeats Absalom's insurgents and delivers David. He restores David to the throne. And yet, enemies still remain against David and against all the Davidic kings after him. Enemies that still needed to be defeated. And now maybe you've gone through this psalm with a, a feeling of somewhat being disconnected, removed from it. You don't feel like your life as, is in danger or has ever been. Though you've experienced some troubles in your life, some trials, though you have some haters in your life, you'd be hesitant to call any of them real enemies or foes. You'd be slow to use any of the strong language David uses here, asking God to to crush your enemies. I mean, this seems to be David's experience alone and not yours. I can understand that. Because in many ways, we are removed from this psalm. 
though we can and have made some applications from it, the most direct application of David's experience is not first to us, but to the one David pointed to, Jesus Christ. Jesus was David's promised descendant, the one who would rule forever. He too was a king whose family rejected him. He too was a king that people sought to kill. And yet, instead of ultimately fleeing from his enemies, he gave himself into their hands to be killed. Where David prays for the Lord to to strike his enemies in verse 7. Understand what that should mean. That you and I should be dead. You see, because if we were directly to apply this psalm to ourselves, where we'd stand would not be in the place of the Lord's anointed, but in the place of his enemies who sought to dethrone him, to remove him from rule. And that's what we've all done through sin. Uh, None of our sins are in the not that bad category. None of our sins are in the I'm not hurting anybody category. All of our sins, every single one of them, are in the high treason against the high king of heaven category. Every single one of our sins deserves God's punishment, deserves God to rise up and strike us. But Jesus has come. God's perfect son. God's anointed king. And he lived obediently to God for us. But has taken on our sins on the cross where God treated his son as one of us, as one of his enemies on the cross, Jesus was struck down and killed in our place. And what people were saying of him, that there's no salvation for him in God, seemed to be true. But God saved his king, not from death, but through death. In three days, God rose Jesus up from the grave, having conquered all of God's enemies, Satan and sin and death. Jesus smashed their jaws and crushed their teeth. Death has no more power. Sin has no more power. Satan has no more power because Jesus rose up and crushed them all. And God has not only risen Jesus up, but he has allowed his son, his risen king, to come and reclaim his his rightful place on the eternal throne. the Father's right hand, calling all of us now to join him there through trusting in him. As David says in in verse 8, truly salvation belongs to the Lord. And he grants it to all those who are connected to his king. The end of verse 8 says, may your blessing, the blessing of salvation be on your people, on all those who submit to and serve this king. For all those who turn away from rebelling against the king, all those who turn away from trying to remove King Jesus from their lives, all those who turn to him instead in repentance and faith, for all of us, salvation from sin and salvation from hell will be ours. And having been saved from from those great enemies, we're then free to ask boldly and expect confidently that God will rescue us through any present trouble that though real, are far less threatening. I mean, what's this current bad relationship at work? What's this current season of hardship compared to captivity and bondage to sin and Satan? God has brought you out of that. Why do you think he won't bring you out of this? 
trust. The God who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also graciously give us all things? In the midst of dangers, in the midst of troubles, we can be assured that God is with us. He cares for us, and he will give us victory. Why? Because he's given his king, Jesus Christ, victory, and we belong to him. Though dangers are ever-present, God is also present to protect his people. So trust him and call on him for help. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the reassurance of your word that reminds us of our sin, our trouble, reminds us of our need of you. Thank you for the provision of salvation in Jesus. We thank you for your king, Lord, who died on the cross that his enemies might become his friends. Lord, we pray that you would give us boldness, confidence in you. We pray that in the midst of whatever trouble we're going through now, Lord, that you would cause them not to eat up our faith, but cause them to cause us to rely not on ourselves, but on you, who raises the dead, who brings us out of every affliction and every trouble. Give us hope, we pray, in Jesus' name.